Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm here with Max Linsky from Longform, but Aaron Lammer, who you might be expecting, I know we were expecting, has gone home sick. He went home sick. He went to the nurse's office and uh, the nurse told him to go home. He's legitimately seems to not be feeling he well. Was, in his defense, he was translucent. I could see like all, all of his vital organs. <laughs> and still he was like, I'll just stay, man. I'll, I'll just stay for and then do the podcast. But he like couldn't get complete senses out. It was a bad scene. So we better get this right. Yeah, feel uh, better having Aaron here. Well, Aaron's not here, but we do have an interview. And Max, who did you interview this week? It was uh, a special one. It was a live. Yeah, it was uh, live. live I went. Uh, Aaron and I went to UC Irvine for this journalism conference, which was super fun. There was all kinds of uh, long form podcast veterans there. Mike Sager was hanging out, and Jay Kang was there. Uh, but I did this live interview with Vanessa Gregoriatis. Um, who writes for New York and Vanity Fair, and she's written for Rolling Stone in the past. She does um, all kinds of things, but you probably know her for her celebrity profiles. She is, uh, I, I think she's the best celebrity profiler that we have. Um, and uh, a note on this interview, and we're going to pick it up actually after I asked her how she manages to make celebrity profiles um, not suck. That's a good place to start. Yeah, you know any interview <laughs> how do you not suck you know i was talking to aaron lammer and he said a good place to start an email newsletter is at a place called tiny letter he told me this even as he was sick not feeling well he said don't forget tiny letter a simple powerful email newsletter from the good people at mailchimp that's exactly what he said to me <laughs> uh but actually that's not our only sponsor we have a second sponsor yeah, we're also sponsored this week by Audible. You know Audible. Um, the good people at Audible will give you a free audiobook. All you need to do is go sign up, audiblepodcast.com slash longform. All right, here's Max and Vanessa. Um, well, I try to ride a line between pleasing the subject and also pleasing the reader. And I have, I think, done that in many cases, including Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift and other people who are like half my age. But, <laughs> you know, I, 
I don't know. I mean, the key is always access, right? It's spending a good amount of time with that person, writing novelistically about them, thinking about it as if it was a short story. What do they look like? What are they eating? How do they eat? Do they have some bizarre OCD element that you can bring out? And just trying to make them a three-dimensional character. Well, let's talk a little bit about access. I mean, uh, it's hard to create a three-dimensional character if you only have half an hour with a publicist sitting next to you. Right. So how does that access happen? Like, is it a negotiation? How does that work? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's the least fun part of the job, that's for sure, because it involves um, negotiating for time or asking for time, getting a small amount of time, and then by virtue of, of your sparkling personality, trying to walk your way into more time. I mean, it's it's difficult. It certainly is difficult, and there's less and less access all the time. I mean, when I started doing this too many years ago to count, you know, we used to get like three days at Rolling Stone if we wanted it right. with uh, an artist. Now, obviously, you get far less, but, you know, whatever. That's the way it goes. Is there like a minimum that you won't go below? Do you have like I a read a cover rules? story about Nancy Pelosi and I had 15 minutes with her. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> In other words. But, or, you know, it was like 15 minutes, but they were gracious enough and I was canny enough to make sure that those 15 minutes included her walking through a hallway in the Capitol, going to have a photo op, going into her office, and, like, then walking from there to another meeting. So, you know, strung along. That sounds like a lot of walking. It was a lot of walking. It was not a lot of talking. And, uh, but, you know, Nancy Pelosi is not um, Miss Let Me Let It All Hang Out in the interview anyway. Right. You know, she will, in some ways, 15 minutes with her, you know, obviously action is very important in profile writing. So just like it is in a play or a movie or whatever, you've got to have your people doing different things. In that case, 15 minutes with her going a lot of different places was much more valuable than an hour sitting there with her bringing it back to, you know, policy statements that I'd heard her make before. I mean, there's obviously a a lot on the record um, that you can pull from. When you do have more time with a subject, uh, what do you do? I mean, Nancy Pelosi's probably not going to break, right? Mm -hmm. It feels to me like part of the the sort of transaction in a celebrity profile is like – they are trying to get press and attention without saying or doing anything they're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And you need to write an article, and preferably they will say or do something they're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. They're obviously not going to do that until they sort of feel comfortable. So are there sort of like techniques, to do, are there things you do to get people to kind of open up to you? I mean, I can't give you away all my <laughs> tricks. Um, you know, I think that... The problem is looking at it like there's something that you're trying to get them to do that they're not supposed to do. You have to, like, take all of that and just table it and not think about that stuff. Like, that's that's going to lead you down a path that might pay off once in a while, but it's not going to pay off every time. Because just setting people up to get them to say something that's going to make, like, the Us Weekly rounds is... First of all, not really my job, although, you know, you could argue that it is a little part of my job, but it's not really my job. And second of all, it's like people are smart, you know, particularly these people. They're sitting there going, when's she going to drop that question? Like, they know. 
Right. You know, every journalist who sits there is like, whether they, if they have an hour, suddenly at minute 51, oh, <laughs> here comes the question, you know, right. about you're interviewing, you know, Angelina Jolie, and here comes the question about the marriage with Brad Pitt, you know, oh, this person has two hours, huh, it'll come at 1.47, you know, right. this person has two days, well, there is, I mean, they're, they know what you're doing. So I think that the way to think about it is more like, let's have an actual, genuine, human, interesting conversation. Am I doing that to develop some trust? Yeah, of course. But it's actually interesting to me. Like, what happened in your childhood? What were your parents like? Like, what are your real thoughts and dreams? Separate. Let's actually talk about the work that you do, but talk about it in a way that's accessible and interesting, not like, what was it like to work with Robert De Niro? Oh, my God, I'm so interested in your answer, which is always going to be, <laughs> I was very excited to work with Robert. I have always really thought of him as my idol. Yeah. You know, like, no, no one ever says, like, fuck De Niro. Yeah, exactly. That's like, <laughs> that doesn't happen. But, you know, if you say, like, look, you know, let's let's think about the different characters that you've played. Like, you know, you seem to always play women who are kind of cold and unemotional, you know, unemotional, not emotionally available, you know, concerned about, uh, you know, everything falling apart or paranoid or whatever. Like, do you think that's true? That seems like that's what your characters are usually interested in. They'll be interested in talking about something like that. So, I mean, that's the way that... I, I approach it much less from, like, a gotcha point of view than I do from just a, like, let's try to have a real human conversation here and be, like, you know, the way that that celebrities talk about it is, like, you know, they go out and they do a junket for a day or maybe a week. They're promoting their movie every single day or whatever art form it is that they're doing. And they're, like, every journalist that comes in, they're, like, I – I hope you're the person who's different. Like, I hope you're right. the one person who's going to not say, are you excited about working with Robert De Niro? Like, I hope you're the one person who's going to be like, do you like watermelon? Like, just <laughs> answer weird questions and right. let's try to do that. You know, obviously, depending on how much time you have, there's a different, you know, kind of question you would ask, blah, 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 blah. I don't use notes or a, a list of questions at all. Some people use the same questions you, you every just time. Like, uh, you just come up with the watermelon question spur of the moment? Yeah. I mean, I don't ask That's like That's virtuoso <laughs> question answer. I got like a whole notebook full of questions here. I mean, I don't ask. I don't. I just. I just. I do ask questions about childhood. I just try to ask whatever I think the next interesting question would be as though we're, you know, having a really uncomfortable blind date or something. Like, that's. Here, that's here's another interesting question that I would like to ask you. Um <laughs> How much research do you do before those things and how conscious are you? I mean, like you're writing about people that get written about all the time. Mm -hmm. You're writing about people that have been profiled many, many times in many, many magazines. Like, do you go and read all that stuff? Do you know exactly what's out there or do you try and like turn it off and? Oh, yeah. No, I know exactly what's out there. Yeah. I mean, I read everything that I can read. I mean, there are some magazines that are harder to get your hands on from, you know, archival stuff than than not. Um Sometimes I'll even read, like, really bad un unauthorized biographies <laughs> of the people just to see. Because those unauthorized biographies are just, like, a compilation of all the, you know, previous articles that have been written about somebody. Yeah, I mean, the point is to basically make sure that they don't say anything in those clips again. 
Like right. everything that they should say to you, you need should to know, be different and original. Right. You need to know if you're getting like a canned answer. Yeah. I mean, as soon as you hear something that you've seen in clips, particularly if you've seen it more than once, you have to like immediately pivot and get out of it. I mean, there are people who it? will say, I don't, I don't. But like there are people who will be like, look, this is not cool. I don't want to talk about that stuff or whatever. But I mean, I think I said like depending on who the person is, I mean, I think I did say – I had a phase of, like, a year where I used to say to the person at the beginning, like, let's try something. Don't say anything you've ever said before. Like, let's try to do that in this interview. And everybody's always been like, okay, you know. But I don't know. I – there, you know, people have all sorts of schemes of what they think works for them. You know, my scheme is no scheme, is just being, like, really – down to earth, and just trying to have an interesting conversation. We haven't done this kind of thing before, but I'm going to quickly interrupt this interesting conversation with Vanessa and tell you a little bit more about one of our sponsors, Audible. You know Audible, right? Audible is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks for download to your computer, phone, MP3 player. Wherever you're listening to this right now, Audible can get you a book. I've been on Audible for years. It's great. There are over 100,000 titles you can choose from, every genre, Audible has you covered. Uh, I just found this out, but you can even subscribe to The New Yorker through Audible. The whole thing's just read out loud for you every week. Sounds pretty great. Um, anyway, if you go right now to audiblepodcast.com slash longform, that's audiblepodcast.com slash longform, you can get the free audio book of your choice. You can do that New Yorker subscription thing or pick up a book by one of the guests we've had on the show, Ted Gonover's books are on there. So are Susan Orleans and Charles Duhigg's. You can listen to Jay Caspian Kang's novel. All kinds of good stuff. Go get yourself a free book. Audiblepodcast.com slash longform. Okay, back to Vanessa. Um, do you still enjoy doing it? You've been doing it for a while now. I really haven't been doing that much celebrity profiling in the last couple of years. I have to say, I kind of got a little bit. Like, I had, uh, uh, you know... I had not a great experience with somebody who you really would expect to have a nice experience with, who was Shakira. And um, I was just like, I think this is, I think Shakira is like the, you know, straw that broke the camel's back. Like, who knew? What happened with Shakira? Shakira, I mean, it was just, you know, it was like one of these standard celebrity profiling nightmares where like, you know, (laughs) I, I flew from L.A. to the Bahamas, which is far, to meet her for two days for a cover of Rolling Stone. And I was going to Burning Man. And I, like, needed to be back on the West Coast to go to Burning Man to, like, meet an RV and my friends and this and that. And it was, like, my vacation. We and I say said that we, to them. We have, like, a hard stop here because you need to go to Coachella after this. <laughs> exactly. Bye, guys. Um, but, you know, I I had said – and it's always with, with rock stars. Like, it's always, like, you know, you get there and then you wait in the hotel for, like, a day or two until they're ready to see you. So I was like, look – you guys are pushing this date as far as I possibly can. I'm like, it's like three days. I have to leave. So I have to leave. I'm going to leave on that day. So three days I was going to be in the Bahamas and she was supposed to hang out with me for two of those days. So I like check into the hotel, the phone rings and it's like the publicist assistant. And she's like, okay, I have you down tomorrow for lunch with Shakira. And here's the address. And I was like, okay, lunch and? And she was like, it's just, it's just lunch. And I was like, no, it's not. It's not just lunch. Like, I just flew to the Bahamas. And um, just for the record, you're complaining about a flight to the Bahamas. (laughs) 
It was raining. Listen. <laughs> yes. I mean, I know. These are, you know, unfortunately, I do understand that complaining about going to meet, like, the biggest Latina rock star in the world, like, in the Bahamas is not a problem. But it's not cute after a while when things like this keep happening. And it all went south from there. Let's just put it that way. It was just, it, the whole thing was a huge mess. And it was an access mess. We can stop talking about this. I'm going to, like, okay. expose my complete <laughs> lack of knowledge about Shakira very right. soon. It's going to get ugly. I, I, I wonder, though, that, like, um, it's, you know, that stopped being cute after a while. But, like, does, like, uh, seeing like behind the scenes, like seeing the sort of like apparatus of fame, does that get like boring after you've seen it that many times? I mean, it does get a little boring in terms of like you always see that like the stars, like best friend from high school happens to be their assistant and like their mom used to be their manager, but now she's been pushed to the side and there's like another manager there and there's always like, you know, the bodyguard, like their entourage is always the exact same people, you know, that travel around with this rock star every place that they go. I love seeing behind the scenes. Like I love seeing that kind of stuff. I'm fascinated by it. I just think that at some point, fame it's uh, it's a dead end like it doesn't go anywhere we're all excited about seeing famous people because it's interesting and exciting and fun to just glimpse that you know because it's so weird that we live in a society that idolizes these random like performers and then we see them beamed out in like mass media all over the place and we can talk about them it's like we're you know the feudal serfs and they're like the lords (laughs) and ladies but after a while it's just not that interesting you don't know that person that well like the apparatus isn't that it just I don't know I feel like I kind of you know I don't know if I aged out of it or I grew out of it or I just was just like, this is, you know, there's other things in the world that I rather apply myself to learning about, you know. So what do you like to learn? What what are you applying yourself to learn about now? I learned a lot about synthetic drugs last (laughs) month. And I don't know. I mean, I'm like a generalist writer. So I really like to do just diff. I'm just curious. I just want to learn about new stuff that I don't know anything about. That's my primary motivation in doing the work that I do. And um, it's difficult because instead of being on a beat where you just keep covering, you know, the same stuff. So, you know, the press officer who works in the, you know, in the local precinct and, you know, all the lawyers in town and all of that. And you kind of have lunch with them and develop these relationships and they feed you information like I'm always the outsider who's just like parachuting in to try to say like okay what's going on here and you know that can become its own cliche too of just like parachute in make a couple of grand statements and get on you know the plane and go back to Burning Man but like it's it's definitely much more fun than um, I think than being on a beat. Well, let's, let's sort of go back a little bit. Is that is that what got you interested in journalism in the first place? Like, was were you a, a writer when you were young? How did how did you get started? I mean, I was always a, a good writer. Um, I was an English major. I went to Wesleyan in Connecticut. Uh, I did a lot of acting in plays there. And did you write um, for the Argus? I didn't even write for the Argus. No, I didn't. I that's the that was the school paper. I didn't write for the school paper. I didn't. I mean, I have just one of these kind of you know ridiculous tales that, unfortunately, this will not happen to you because this structure does not exist anymore in New York since there's like 
<laughs> barely any magazines left and nobody has an assistant anymore. But back then, you know, you could be essentially a humanities major from a college and move to New York and get an internship, as I did at New York Magazine, and then quit the internship because you needed to make money, and then bump into somebody from the magazine on the subway, <laughs> and they were like, oh, hi. Like, Kurt Anderson, who was the founder of Spy, you know, he was the editor of New York Magazine at the time, He's his assistant's going on vacation for two weeks, it was August, and um, we need somebody to fill in. Do you want to come and fill in? And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds good. Like, you're going to pay me. You know, I'll go. Sure. And so I went there, and it was a regular old school newsroom where there were no cubicles, and people actually talked to each other as opposed to now, which is just like click, 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 click. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, I, li- I work in one of those, like, right. library offices where it's like you're G-chatting <laughs> the person two feet away from exactly. you. Exactly, yeah. I mean, here we were like, I mean, Super people healthy, were shouting at each other. Like, I heard people, you know, arguing, <laughs> you're a terrible writer, like, whatever. There was like a wait, wait, huge arguing. sitting in New York Magazine yelling across no, the cubicle, you're a terrible some writer? editor and this writer who, like, quit that week had some, you know, complete blowout right next to me but in this you know in it, it wasn't even cubicles it was just desks <laughs> and they had me in the assistant's desk which happened to be next to the mansion editor's desk who was an older woman and I just thought like she's another assistant so we were like talking about her life in Portland Oregon and how like we both like to like do like West African dance and drumming and we're just like chilling out blah 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 and meanwhile she's like the person who hires and fires everybody and then I was like okay bye you guys like I'm going back to you know whatever have my weird job and a month later they called me up and were like oh do you want to be an assistant here and I was like, okay. And then there I was. And I was an assistant. And then I worked my way kind of up from there. And do you know that you want to be writing features for the magazine? Is that the goal? Do you know what kind of stories you want to be doing? No. I mean, I was just like, I just wanted to have a job that seemed like it had a future, you know. <laughs> Little did I know. Awesome choice. Little did I know. <laughs> exactly. But, you know... I started going out with Patrick McMullen, who's like a very well-known uh, society photographer. So he would go to all of these fancy charity events, like fancy, only celebrities, only dignitaries, only like, you know, the, the governor and the mayor and this and that. And um, I would tag along with him. He would take the photos and then I would tag along and I would ask, you know, dumb questions and then I would write up a, like a little 200 word kind of this is what happened this week. It's kind of like a glorified like society column but had like a little bit of edge to it because it had to have the voice of the magazine. And this is the first like real reporting that I did. And Patrick is this incredible creature. You know, he's like a Bill, you know, Bill Cunningham who takes the pictures of um, the women in their different outfits for the style page and the times he's kind of like a similar person but he's really boisterous and he'll go up to like anybody and he'll just be like you know Mayor Bloomberg like this is Vanessa Gregoriadis and she's from New York Magazine and she has something to ask you and you're like in the party you're not like on a red carpet and you know Mayor Bloomberg is like standing there with like his wife and like you know Jennifer Aniston and you're just like hi Mayor Bloomberg like what what was the last time you took the subway? What was it like? <laughs> you know, and he's just like never writing questions down. Stupid question, but you know, it was this really kind of cool way to learn how to report because it was terrifying, and I really don't get like that freaked out 
by a lot of stuff. This was really scary. It was really scary. You were really on the spot. You had to break up. Sometimes Patrick wasn't there and I would have to walk up to like groups of people that were just like having cocktails and be like, hello, you know, and there's only like two or three reporters in those events, but New York Magazine was allowed in. So, you know, I did that and that kind of got me like, okay, this is, I'm, I'm into this. Like, I like the adrenaline of this. And then I wrote a story based on, you know, this is also like only something you would do if you were young. Because I was like, I go to these parties and there are these women who are my age and they stand at the door with a clipboard. Who are those women? I am so interested. And they are publicists. Oh, my God. What, what is that? I don't know what that is. <laughs> and, you know, they th- particularly I became interested in these fashion and society publicists who would like literally work for Louis Vuitton and they would stand at the opening of like some new big Louis Vuitton store. And they would like anytime a socialite would come in, they would hand them like a handbag. So they would walk through a red carpet and then maybe they would take the handbag back or maybe the socialite would like steal it or who knows what would happen. But anyway, I started kind of following them around and I did this like really explosive, you know, obviously it's a very soft subject, but like very behind the scenes, like how does this all work? And a bunch of these girls had tried to make like an it girl out of one woman who worked at, uh, at a boutique. She was just like a shop girl at a boutique. She was British. And they were like, we're going to get her interviewed by Vogue about, like, her highlights. We're going to get her an in-style. Basically, it's like a a real-life Mean Girls. No, it was... Yeah, kind of. I mean, I just reread yeah, the story. It, it basically like is real. Clueless, I mean, but okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like yeah, like Emma or Clueless. Yeah, similar. Yeah. Similar. Yes, it's the standard story. <laughs> this is not the first time this story has been told. The women like to you know take the take the loser and make her a winner. And basically, what happened is like she ended up having an affair with a real socialite's hus- uh, husband, and then they kind of like destroyed her after that. How quickly did you go from, like, shagging quotes at parties to, like, blowing up people's spot in the magazine? I mean, it was, like, two months later or something. <laughs> it was insane. No, it was maybe, like, six months later. Yeah. And uh, did you, like, were you working on that story for a long time? Did it take you a long time to report? I mean, it took me a few months. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I never, I had written maybe one or two story, like, actual real stories before then. Were you, were you nervous when it came out? I mean, it, it, it. No. It blows some people up. I mean, apparently, I didn't know, I didn't, you know, it's so, it's, it's really, you know, it's hard to understand now from where we sit, where, uh, you know, the complexity of writing has been lost in a lot of ways, and there are a lot of very snarky blogs, and then there's a lot of very earnest reporting, but, you know, those things used to be really mixed together, like, it wasn't, you know, when, magazines and newspapers controlled the print world you know you just we controlled the 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 information so we could say the information however we wanted to say the information (laughs) because we were the only people talking you know obviously now the power balance is completely different so I don't know I mean to me you know I come from this old New York magazine, very influenced by Spy, where we were just having a jolly good time in that office. And we were trying to make stories that made other people in the office laugh. Like, right. we just thought it was funny. You know, we were just trying to to make stories that were amusing and funny. And, and so, 
you know, it wasn't about like blow this person up or not blow this person up. It was more just about like what's what's the best story that can be told. Right. I mean, how would you describe it now? You know, now New York Magazine is a really much more sophisticated product. It's a lot less, um, I mean, I hate to use the words text-oriented, but the actual print magazine is really a design product in some ways. It's like truly the the most well-designed, most beautiful magazine, general interest magazine, I think, and it's hip and it's cool, you know, and, and the stories are supposed to reflect well on that brand. Whereas back in the day, New York Magazine was a kind of Tina Brown-esque thing where there was, you know, a lot of really, you know, grabby headlines and in-your-face reporting and some bad taste, You know, (laughs) it's also changed. I mean, this is like maybe a little too granular since we're in Irvine, but it's changed from being a magazine that used to cover like the Upper East Side and the Hamptons and all the Tony places. Like it's no longer like the Laguna Beach magazine. Like now it's like, no, we're going to be a San Diego magazine. We're going to actually say like, what's going on? What's the, you know, what's the, the drivers of the economy? And like, how is this all working? And what are people who actually have like alternative ways of, looking at things, you know, what what are they doing? We're right. not just going to cover what the rich people do, you know? Let's let's keep the geographical thing going here for a <laughs> second. So, like, y- you were in New York, and you were writing about people your age sort of in society, and then eventually you, you wrote a lot about sort of New York media and New York media culture. You wrote, like, mm-hmm. a big piece about Gawker. That was kind of, mm-hmm. like, one of the first big pieces about Gawker, which is totally hilarious to reread now. <laughs> um, and then you moved to L.A. Right. For love. For love, <laughs> how how did that how did that move change your work? How did that move change the stuff you covered? Do you miss that New York media world? Well, I do live in New York part time, so I am pretty bi coastal. But I can get like my you know fix of it if I need to. Um, well, I mean, I moved to LA in like probably two thousand and six maybe really full-time I also lived in Hawaii for two years in like an incredibly remote location where my husband was working where like I lived in a um like 200 square foot shack with like a golf cart battery because to like power the solar panels because we had no it was off the grid I mean that that was bananas (laughs) and I was you know flying to do like Britney Spears articles like in California and then flying back there and that was really odd but um I think that around that time, around 2006, obviously things started changing in media and it became much more digitally focused. And, um, you know, there was no real need for me to network with people in New York anymore. Like, first of all, I have the, you know, the, the blessing really of writing that article that we were talking about, about the publicist, the Power Girls article was really noticed by people because it was talking about something that is kind of taboo, which is journalists talking about publicists is a little, it's a little dicey. Like it's a little dicey. You don't want to bite the hand that feeds you so much, you know? (laughs) And that was like your second story. Yeah. (laughs) And they were also crazy about it so they kept on calling the New York Post and so it was just very it was very visible so you know I was known to a lot of editors obviously as a writer 
you need to be known to editors. Editors are the people who have the power and they hire you and you get booked on stories almost like you're an actor. And they're like, okay, are you available? And you know what? As soon as I say, no, I'm not available, they just go to the next name on the list. I mean, a lot of the calls I get, I might be the sixth name on the list. You know, I mean, like, I get, sometimes I get, like, weird calls about sports figures and I'm like, I know I wasn't the first one, okay? <laughs> <laughs> like, how many people have you now tried? Are there, um, are there ways outside of your work to stay at the top of that list? Like, how, how do you... Uh, I don't think there are. I mean, I don't think there are. There are a lot of people, you know, long-form writers, like, obviously, you know, we haven't talked about, like, the the sudden and <laughs> decline in our job prospects. But, you know, long-form writers traditionally have, you know, Mike Sager's here. He does not live in New York. Lots, either Walter Karen lives in Montana. Like, there's lots of people who live... Some of the best people don't live in New York. And, you know, they don't want to put up with the bullshit. And also, like, if you're a journalist and you hang out with other journalists, how interesting is your work ultimately going to be? You're just listening to other people talk about the same stuff, which is really, unfortunately, one of the problems with becoming too into Twitter and too into, you know, Facebook or social media or, you know, your RSS feed. It's just like everybody's getting the same stuff. You have to think about the other stuff, or at least about a different way of thinking about this stuff. Um, and so I think the national magazine writer, long-form magazine writer, who gets booked on stories and then gets on the plane and, you know, goes to either do Shakira or a small-town murder is, like, you know, an archetype that exists. And I then became one of those people because right. I did do a lot of national reporting. I started working more for Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone because they have a lot of stuff going on in L.A. How do you how do you sort of balance those three magazines? So you're writing for New York and Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone. Like, uh, do you have a certain number of articles every year that you're going to write for each one? Yeah. I mean, I don't work for Rolling Stone anymore. So I write three articles that are long, so like 6,000-word articles for New York Magazine. And then I write a variable number for Vanity Fair. It's usually like four to six. And how many of those are stories that you have found and pitched? Um, probably half. Yeah. I mean, it, I, when I was like looking through your archive, it it feels almost like there's like this like uh, one for them, one for me thing yeah. going on. Like you're going to do a big celebrity profile, but then you're going to do – a, like small town murder story, right, right, which right. I assume those aren't assigned. Do you? Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. You know. Do you? Uh, do you like doing that crime stuff? I love doing crime stuff. I just am not as interested in in traveling anymore because I have a, a baby now. So I, you know, I really just don't like. I just. I don't think it's too fun to get on the plane without my baby and go stay, like, in a Radisson in Steubenville right now. Like, I just don't, you know, like, my a friend of mine went and spent two weeks in Steubenville. And she's going to have a great story. Like, really, you know? And part of me is like, I, I wish I could have gone there, too. But it's just not a time in my life where I have that ability. I mean, certainly from a financial standpoint, like, I don't even know how I would do that. Like, would I take a nanny with me to Steubenville? You know? (laughs) Like, do I get a suite at the Radisson? I mean, you know, I've had conversations where I've been like, so you're going to fly me and my baby, right? And they're like, no. I'm like, okay, so I guess I'll 
I'll pay for the babysitting. Because <laughs> like, I know after six hours with this baby on my lap, I'm not going to be in any, you know, state to work. So, like, even if I got a babysitter there, it just doesn't seem – at this point, I just don't think that that – I can do, like, you know, a fast piece, two or three days in a location. But when you're dealing with something like the Steubenville rape story where you have, like, multiple characters, may or may not talk to you. You have to go to wine and dine the lawyer and then this lawyer and then, oh, let's go find the high school teacher and the coach and the this. And you're, like, running around with your GPS knocking on doors I mean those things they don't have an out date you know like I can't say to my husband like I'm going to Steubenville and I'll be back when I'm back when I'm done just doesn't fit (laughs) just doesn't fit into your life anymore well it's just I've done a lot of stories like that and I know like I've been the person who's like left Las Vegas and been like driving back to LA and had like, you know, the madam call me and be like, oh, hey, yeah, I know I didn't answer my phone the last couple of days. I like lost it, but now I'm totally ready to meet with you. You know, like (laughs) just things like that happen all the time. You can't, you know, you can't, I remember when I was, when I started doing crime, there's a woman named Lisa DiPaolo who writes for GQ a lot now. And she doesn't seem to do that much crime now, but she used to do a lot of crime. And I remember talking to her. I was like, okay, tell me how you do this. And she was just telling me these stories. She was like, you know, last night I was in Paramus and I was sitting in a Dunkin' Donuts. I was supposed to, some guy was supposed to meet me there at nine. And I sat there till midnight and he didn't show up. And I was like, but you are Lisa DiPaolo. Like, how could he not have shown up? And she was just like, it doesn't, like, you're always going to be seen in the Dunkin' Donuts till midnight. Like, it doesn't matter if you're, like, Anderson Cooper's producer or, I mean, obviously there's some, you know, (laughs) 60 Minutes people, I'm sure they care more about that. But it's just, there's always, always things get messed up. Always people are more difficult than you thought. Suddenly one source comes through and is amazing. You know, you just can't, you can't figure it out. So even if those stories don't, sort of fit into your life as well now you've done a lot of them and maybe the like uh students would be interested to know like what's your process when you're going after one of those kinds of stories one of those like big crime stories where like what's your approach how uh aggressive or in the background are you trying to be well again you know i'm not aggressive like i want to see the weird details that daily reporters won't get I want to get in that person's house. I want to see what their, you know, uh, dishware looks like. I want to see if it's messy in there, if it's clean, and what the pictures are that they have around, and, you know, how they act towards me um, while we're talking. I mean, that's what I'm looking for. So I don't need to say to them over and over, like, did you kill this woman? You know, <laughs> I think you did or whatever. Like, I'm not one of those pushy people who's trying to, like, be like, Arr! because then they're just going to clam up and tell me to leave. Right. So I think that's, you know, that's really the distinction between people who do things who are that are longer. A lot of people who do things that are longer would never push people, you know. And when you see those details, like, do you – know the second you see your lead or your kicker like are you structuring the story in your head while you're reporting it or do you like come back to like a giant pile of notes and start figuring it out I mean I generally leave the scene once I know what the ending is I pretty much can figure out the beginning you know I mean after a certain amount of reporting it's not that hard to figure out what the beginning of the story is once I it clicks in my mind that this is the ending then I'm like okay gotta go there's a plane leaving bye you know like that's (laughs) right yeah 
then it's done. Yeah. But I never really know what's happening in the middle. I mean, the way that I write is, as I said earlier, I ask a lot about childhood in profiles particularly, but I think it works for everything. Um, You can start just writing a mini biography of the person. Like they were brought up in this place, single mom, had no food in the refrigerator, Justin Bieber's story. You know, uh, Justin Bieber, I think, like, slept on a pull-out couch. You know, he told me all this stuff about his childhood. It's also subjects people really like being asked about their childhood. So, you know, it creates a bond. But um, I usually write that first because that's the easiest thing to write. Right. And then you can kind of think, okay, well, that's I'm going to drop that someplace in the middle. So what does the rest of this look like? And then you spent all this time with people. You spent a bunch of time with Justin Bieber, for example, and which sounds like you had a pretty good time. Um <laughs> You appear in your stories a lot. And is that, like, uh, do you know that that's going to be the case? Like, when you like when you went down there, the lead of the Justin Bieber story is like, I kind of have a huge crush on Justin Bieber. And yeah. did you, I mean... <laughs> Which I decided I didn't after I met him, by the way. So Pretty immediately after meeting him. <laughs> to your credit, like, I think. I'm a disgusting pervert. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean... I knew that that was going to be funny and there was going to be a payoff. Like if I said, okay, I'm a woman in my 30s and I keep like watching these videos over and over. I'm like, he's so cute. Check this out. Oh my God. You know, like there's going to be a payoff to that. I mean, truly that was my experience that like, you know, I normally really could care less what this person thinks of what I look like or what I'm wearing. You know, I'm in like my rumpled clothes I brought on the plane and you know, I'm just concerned about if my recorders work. Like, I carry two recorders. I really suggest if you decide to do this, you do not use an iPhone recorder and you invest in two, like, $30 digital recorders. You put a little rubber band around them. You have two. You don't have to worry that, like, is this on? Is it not on? Blah, 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 you know? Um, and, like, I brought an outfit. I got an iron at the hotel. I ironed my outfit. They told me I was, like, going to go ice skating with him. So I, like, was like, oh, my God, you're going to go ice skating? Like, what's it going to be like? I don't know. Like, I'm so embarrassed. I, like, practice. I've been <laughs> ice skating since I was, like, 10, you know. And, like, this Range Rover pulled up, and the door opens, and it's, like, this kid who is – I'm, like, 5'2", who is literally my height – Wearing, like, Invisalign braces, so he, like, pops them out, you know? Like, and he's, like, playing with them in his hand, and I was just, and he's, like, pumping rap music, and I was, like, no, this is not. And I was just, like, are we going ice skating? He was, like, that's corny. And I was, like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's go play pool. I was, like, all right, that's so much cooler. Uh, I wasn't looking forward to it or anything, but, you know, so... Obviously, you're looking for the humor in the situation. If something like that happens, you have to seize it. I mean, in the story about Gawker that I had done, um, it's so funny that I might have to tell you guys what Gawker is because there was a time when anybody who was involved in journalism definitely knew what Gawker was. But it was like at one time a media industry gossip blog um, plus some other information. But really that's what they were – kind of focused on and they did this very smart thing where they got everybody in media reading it because they wanted to see like what are you saying about me and then they kind of turned it into some like weird celebrity oriented property that it is now and um but I wrote a piece about it and how I felt as like an old media journalist reading this new media blog and I had like a whole story that didn't have anything to do with me um but that was the motivation in doing the story I had interviewed the bloggers And um, You were there even though you weren't really in the story. Right. But then I went back and I actually changed the story because they had written something really mean about my wedding announcement. 
and I was just like, you know, I think like because the first draft that I turned in, my editor was like, I don't think this works, and I was like, okay, you know, I think I know it would work, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, so I did it, and then it's like, you know, it's a double-edged sword because then I'm. I'm introducing people who didn't read the stupid blog item to right. like me being embarrassed about like being uh, you made fun of down. because I went to Wesleyan and like that my husband had worked for like a gay photographer you know <laughs> it was just like these people are such like hipster cliches like <laughs> pathetic you know um but uh yeah I mean you gotta do what works so if you put yourself in it I don't need to be in it but I would put myself in it if it will help me finish the task I assume that Gawker also, you know, skewered you after that story came out. What, what's the what's the angriest anyone's ever been with you after a story? <sighs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, I don't know if people are angry. I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, people being angry. You know, it's more like the silence is deafening. It's like if you don't hear anything, you know the person probably didn't like it. You know, that's basically what happens. And you know that's – I mean – you know what you're doing while you're writing it. Like, you know the, the parts that are going to upset people. No, not at all. Really? No. So you're surprised by what pisses people off? I mean, I don't know. I don't think being written about is a really pleasant experience for anybody. I certainly have had, like, some people write little stories about me or, like, study my work for a college assignment, and then I've seen the things that they've written, and it, I just don't think that's me, you know? And so... I can't say, you know, I think in an interesting way, uh, a lot of female journalists, and there's a reason probably why there aren't a lot of long-form female journalists, in addition to the fact that travel is really hard with family, um, are a lot less convinced than male journalists that, like, this is part of what makes our democracy run. And, like, if they want the attention, they should let it all hang out. And, like, why wouldn't you talk to me? I'm going to knock your ass back and forth. Like, doubt. you know, I just read Charlie LaDuff, who's a fantastic writer, just wrote this book about Detroit. He was a New York Times writer. He went there. And he was, like, putting, you know, talking about him reporting in Detroit. And he was, like, if he doesn't talk to me, I'm knocking his ass back and forth down Detroit Avenue. And, like, saying all <laughs> these things. And I was just, like, oh, my God, we'll never say anything like this. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, the most I'll be is like if they don't cooperate you know how things go but like I'm pretty you know much a pushover in that aspect um like look I think that in the past I might have been more aggressive about some of the people that I wrote about and I had a chip on my shoulder and I had a lot more anger than I have now from years of therapy and also just like you know I feel like there's a trust that's going on I'm I'm getting also, I mean, access has gotten so much harder that, like, getting good access, you're kind of like, all right, thank you. I'm in your house. This is great. You know, you're giving me grapefruit juice. I feel good about our experience here, and I'm going to try to portray it well. I do think that I have a little bit of a weird tendency. Like, I'm always trying to do the counterintuitive thing. So I have a tendency to take people who aren't that well thought of by the media hive mind and say really great things about them and then maybe do the reverse. It's a little bit of like an authority kind of complex. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I just don't – I'm not like trying to speak truth to power the way that I used to, to be honest. Like I felt a little bit more like I'm going to, you know, really – lay it all out here and now I'm just kind of like let's just make a story this is entertainment like ultimately this is about 
people relaxing and getting like a, a good read, there's a whole group of people who are doing information and I'm not one of them, you know, and I'm more in the entertainment area, I think, with my writing at this point. What would your 26-year-old self think of that? I mean, <laughs> that's too hard a question. <laughs> what would my 26 I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I've, I always had, like, a kind of I want to sleep well after this story thing happening. I always have felt somewhat conflicted, and I don't want to hurt people, you know, and, and I work in soft news areas for a reason. So I would be okay with it probably. That seems like a good place to end. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you guys thank for sitting you. through that. And uh, Vanessa, appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to Long Form. Thanks very much to Vanessa for taking some time pre-Coachella to talk to me. Thanks to UC Irvine for hosting us. There's a lot of good young journalists down there at UC Irvine. Uh, warms a guy's heart. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our sponsors this week, the good folks at Tiny Letter. Use them to send your newsletters. And Audible. Use them to get a free audiobook. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. Get a free book. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.